Welcome to the Femsplainers. I'm Danielle Crittenden. And I'm Christina Hoff-Summers. And today we're going to continue to explore the topic of why people do what they do in relations to sex. Sexual perversions. Sexual perversions, because recently we had on adult film actress slash porn star Chanel Preston, who was fascinating. And triggering. (laughs) Well, only if you looked at some of the... Yeah, I did look at it. I I looked at it. It was triggering. but, But it was an interesting conversation to talk to her about why she did what she did, and then the incredible searches that people look for on porn, men and women. The sexual imagination is not polite. <laughs> it's, it is not. Not different. even a little bit polite. And it involves a lot of people. I'm disappointed with you, people. <laughs> <laughs> well, as you also pointed out, which I thought was so true, why the tacky decor? Can't they do, can't they do this stuff somewhere nice? Yeah, better, better. More elegant. Like get some... Interior decorating. Maybe a little modernism. Dwell Magazine. You know, why is well, it always magazine. in these? Or whatever happened to, do you remember House and Garden? Beautiful interiors. Blend that with porn and I'm there. Do you think we're revealing our preferences for real estate porn? <laughs> <laughs> Interior porn. <laughs> that's right. That's what I, that's, I that's actually of, it's kind way of more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So in our quest for understanding, we're going to have on Emily Yaffe. Who the has re- sainted Emily Yoffe. I almost crossed myself, even though I'm Jewish, for <laughs> Emily Yoffe. She's amazing. A brilliant writer. And if you don't know her name, Emily Yoffe, Y-O-F-F-E. Google it and read everything she's written. The most recent thing that she wrote was an article called Understanding Harvey. We'll put it up online, which was published in the Highline website of, which, of Huffington Post. It's like an 8,000-word essay. You must read every word. Yes. So she went into the history of why men do this. And, and also she recognized the patterns in this behavior that, that what Louis C.K. or even Harvey Weinstein is doing is as awful or as terrible as it is. It is match certain types of behaviors that have been with us throughout time. And she made the case, and we'll obviously talk to her about it, is unless we understand what they're doing and why they're doing, we're not going to be able to treat it. If we just keep it as an issue of feminism or power or entitlement, we're not going to be able to either address it, solve it, it, or help these men. So do you want to, aside from Emily also being your dog walking friend? Yes, we walk our dogs together. <laughs> Tell, give us some quick fem facts, Christina, well, about Emily's background. Well, she is background. now a contributing editor to The Atlantic and a writer on Highline. But prior to joining The Atlantic, she was a longtime contributor to Slate. She was Dear Prudence. She was the advice columnist. It's, it was one of the best advice columns. The best advice column ever. It was the most popular part. Of Slate, right? By far, and she's not a therapist, but she just and she, she gets the weirdest stories, sense. and she has common yeah. sense. She's unflappable, and people would send her their weird sexual perversions. <laughs> she wasn't entirely patient with it, but <laughs> she had very good advice. She's written extensively about probably the best articles on the campus sexual assault crisis, and she was a finalist in 2015 for the National Magazine Award in public interest for her Slate stories on the college rape overcorrection. And I really advise you to read 
Right. We can post links to these on our Facebook at Femsplainers well, was to make th- sure you have the yeah, you full reading. Read it. it was a three-part Atlantic series on the alleged campus rape culture, and it's, it's absolutely brilliant. The Uncomfortable Truth About Campus Rape Policy. And it is, you will become very uncomfortable when you find what she has revealed, just about the misinformation, the junk science, mm-hmm. the panic, the hysteria, and then underlying it, a very real problem that we should try to solve. And that's what I love about her, is that she asks of the women's movement, she asks of, you know, social activists, let's be reasonable and practical and try to solve a problem. So when it comes to... Well, let's try to get to the bottom of the problem. What is causing about... What is causing this? What is real? Yeah. Oh, and one thing I must say, I don't know if we'll have time to bring this up to her, but she did something else at Slate, which she called the human guinea pig. And during this time, she took jobs that were weird. Didn't readers write in and, and, and advise her? Or I'd say, go do this. And she was go, like a mime. And, and she she's would do it. Street performer. She's fearless. She, she went to a nudist colony. <laughs> and she posed nude in an art class. Would you pose nude in an art class? No. I think I might once have done that. Oh, my God. Well, I, fact, maybe, yeah. Maybe, maybe these are maybe when I was Acid flashbacks. She won the Mrs. Washington, D.C. contest. What? Yeah, she won it. She was Is the only a- contestant. But maybe we should enter it. Is there a bathing suit? Continue. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> because there are no other contestants. You can win it. It's like being, our dog once came in second in a two-dog competition. So I, I, I don't know that this My really Izzy helps. could come in first in any competition and we're coming for you. What's the, what's the, what's the, Westminster, we're coming. Yeah. She learned to shoot guns and she admits that she loved it. She was a great shot. I'm not surprised. She's, like, good at everything. Mm -hmm. And she was examined by 23 medical students, and one of them wanted to give her a lobotomy. What? Was that part of the job thing that she did? Apparently, it was a job to be... I don't think you have to go that far for journalism. I think sometimes you do. But Emily (laughs) would. Anyway, coming up next, Emily Yofi. Don't go away. Look at me. Emily, welcome to the Femsplainers. Hi, Emily. So excited to be here. Yeah, although we have to note that Emily is so far refusing to tell us a cocktail that she likes. And I poured some rosé, and she's refused that too. You don't want Femme passing out. (laughs) (laughs) Femme spluttering. All right, well, let's keep her sober, because she has so many important things to tell us. She just had an article, as we explained. Emily, what created a Harvey Weinstein? All right. Well, first of all, I am not a psychologist or psychiatrist. I'm a journalist, which allows me to practice medicine on podcasts, right? So as I was interviewing these professionals saying, where does a Harvey come from? They all said, look, it's crucial when you're looking at sexual violators that you get a case history, a very complex case history of each person. I think we want to have a X causes Y, and now we know what's wrong with these people. Sex addiction is often given as the blanket explanation, which it is not. So I can't tell you what caused a Harvey Weinstein, but I 
I started this article because we're in a time where, you know, one horrifying case after another would come to light and you, you hear of the, I mean, dozens, in some cases, hundreds of victims coming forward. And once you've read two, three, four accounts, you know exactly what's going to happen when you read the next account. There will be a meeting. Harvey will excuse himself to go to the bathroom. He will come out in his bathrobe or a towel or be naked. And then, you know, the fun begins. And I was thinking, this isn't just power. Come on. There is a weird, repetitive, sexual... Stylized, yes. Very stylized, kabuki theater kind of (laughs) sexual script being played out. When we look at pedophile priests, no one says, oh, it's just abuse of power, which it certainly is, because Mm -hmm. the priests had almost unlimited power, you know, were alone with young boys. But we see that as sexual deviance. But we refuse to see these cases in a sexual way. And I think we're missing the public health message. We're we're failing to see it in all its complications. So one thing I wanted to do is exactly try to answer your question. Where does this come from? What do we know about it? And the answer is complicated. So I can't say what made a Harvey, but I certainly did find out interesting things about the formation of sexual sexual deviancy. Well, one of the things I loved about your article was, as you say, it's a pattern and it goes back through history that any person who's seen a flasher knows that there are men who go around in raincoats and expose themselves to women. It struck me that the Harveys are just kind of celebrity flashers, that it really does stem from some sort of probably diagnosable psychological disorder, and that we're now just characterizing it in these kind of political terms of power and anti-woman and stuff. But talk a little bit about what you found through history, the, the earliest references to these kinds of behaviors. Well, the references go way back. Jean-Jacques Rousseau, the great Enlightenment <laughs> philosopher, was an exhibitionist. He had a spanking fetish. And like many, but certainly not all, but it is not uncommon for people with very specific fetishes to be able to describe the exact moment where their sexuality coalesced around this thing, usually in quite early childhood. Rousseau's mother died in childbirth, And he was mostly raised by a kind of nanny who was very punitive and would spank him mercilessly. And he describes at eight years old, it wasn't just the spankings, it was her disdain and contempt for him, which created this lifelong passion to be spanked by disparaging women. And he would wander around with his buttocks exposed, hoping to provoke the... Yes. (laughs) So, I mean, one of the more amazing things I found out, again, this does not describe all the men, but people with very specific sex fetishes often can say and can tell if they go into therapy, this is when this happened to me. We do not know why... Almost everyone has, if you look back on childhood, it's like, oh, I was getting kind of a tingly feeling or I had this massive crush or, you know, early on. I mean, Freud was right in that sexuality emerges much earlier than we like to say, but we don't know why some people get stuck there. And in the story, I I cite an example from... Kraft Ebbing? Well, not just Kraft Ebbing, the, the guy who is sexually stuck on masturbating while wearing a yellow raincoat. 
<laughs> the classic, like he's that's the, the yeah. Well, he's not going out it's in not public, a right? <laughs> it's not a bathroom. And he told his therapist when he was a little boy, he got a oversized fire truck for Christmas, which he would ride around, and riding on the truck gave him tingly feelings, and it came with a little yellow raincoat, and he felt like a big important fireman, and he's getting these tingly feelings, and that is his lifelong fetish, and the thing about that is he was seeing a therapist because he was disgusted and appalled by being stuck this way. I mean, it wasn't, boy, I would like to have this weird yellow raincoat fetish. As one of the therapists I talked to said, these experiences get shaped even before children are consciously understanding it's sexual. And then he said, then you reach puberty, and in some ways your sexuality is there for you to discover. Exactly. There are these therapists, like uh, Dr. Fred Berliner, Johns Hopkins, who has worked with people with paraphilic disorders, child molesters and exhibitionists and voyeurs, and he says that there is treatment. They can be helped, not always, but uh, a combination of therapy and drugs, which I guess they lower the testosterone level and try to discourage the erotic imagination. And one thing that struck me is the people that go to him, we always hear, well, these perversions are about power. He shows that they're actually, many of them are disempowered. They're being ruined by their, they're not celebrities, but they're horrified. They're suicidal because they're just enthralled to these destructive fantasies and they have lost self-control and he tries to help them. I saw him interviewed briefly when the Me Too revelations came out, and he was the one person that said that it was, in part, that yes, it's a criminal justice issue, for the, like the Bill Cosby's and the Harvey Weinstein's, but a public health issue as well, and we should have better outreach and awareness. But the fact is, it's men, primarily. Well, Emily, what you were saying about Rousseau makes me think that in some cases, it's people who have had these horrible treatments during their childhood, turning them into sexual fetishes in order to maybe even overcome them or take control of this horrible past. So if he had a punitive nanny, you know, he turns spanking into a feature, not a bug, as it were. Yes, but again, we really don't know. The, the fire truck guy, yeah. that was just a fun thing. Why? Why did he get stuck? I think we have to be careful about sort of imposing it's turning something dark and destructive into something sexual, which it may be in some cases. Again, the thing about this that every therapist I spoke to said, the path is so different for each person. You know, some people may get to sexual violations because they have underlying anxiety, OCD issues, etc. And this is a kind of masturbating out of control is a mm -hmm. self-soothing. Other people may, in fact, have gotten stuck in childhood, turning this punitive thing into a sexual thing. So there's no one answer. But as you pointed out, whatever got you there, they express themselves in patterns or similar ways. I loved in your article, you said the hotel rooms, the bathrooms, and the masturbation, so much masturbation, that in the end, they come out in, in, in familiar ways. Well, as I found out, however you get there, for the people with these tight, kabuki-like sexual scripts, and I like the notion of 
sexual scripts being written because as you're reading these accounts, it's almost like the the guy is orchestrating a kind of improv where he knows the script and everyone else around him has to act their part. And I think part of the excitement is, what is she going to do? You know, you don't know what the next victim is going to do. I was told that people with very narrow sexual focus, they spend their adolescence kind of rehearsing this while masturbating, which makes a powerful synergy. And then they don't have a script for expressing sexuality with a partner. Or sometimes people who are doing this kind of thing are Harvey Weinstein's married. So other people may have a kind of more normal sexual life in a relationship, but their main sexual focus is this other thing because of shame or whatever. They don't want to bring that into the marriage to play out. They keep it Like an Elliot Spitzer type of... Yeah, you know, I mean, we see a lot of these people. Harvey was married, Bill Cosby was married, Elliot Spitzer. I think the standard gender studies line would be, well, this was a socially constructed mode of asserting power over women. And they would go back to Susan Brown Miller, her theory about how rape, you know, was just a means of men controlling women, how all men control women. And what was striking about your piece is you see that it's a little more complicated. First of all, it's not all men, but it's very few women. So it is largely a lot of these disorders or compulsions afflict men and very few women. Is it four to one or five to one? Or I don't even give numbers. Trying to get numbers in the how many people have a fetish, I don't think we'll ever have a good number for that. But the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual of the American Psychological Association, which is the kind of Bible of diagnoses, when they're going through the paraphilias, they say, we don't know, but you know what we see or what studies have shown, most no women are exhibitionists, men are exhibitionists, and some small percentage of Go men over display the, this. The, these disorders, there's voyeurism, mm-hmm. exhibitionism, frauderism. Uh, what is it's frauteurism. This is frauteur. Yes. Rubbing up against rubbing. These are the guys in the subway. And you know, I I talked to a psychiatrist who said her patients who do this, they just like no. I don't rub against women in the subway. They they have an artistry to this. This <laughs> she said they really describe. You know, I do it in this sophisticated, delicate way. All right, so smooth. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Like you don't. So smooth. No, this is happening. Yeah. So as we go through them, it's we envision a creepy guy, right? And you know, it seems to be pedophilia is one. pedophilia, sadomasochistic sexuality. Yes. And then, you know, those are the ones that the DSM recognizes. And then they say, paraphrasing, there are too many millions more to, you it's know. It's the whole he, human drama. Well, well and, and, and another one. of all fetishism, sorts. For- you know, there's fetishism of body part, you know, armpits, hair, feet. Often feet are, feet are big. Feet are big. Feet have always been big. Women's shoes. So maybe you don't have a thing for feet. You have a thing for shoes. Remember the I, Washington guy who was for toes? Oh, Dick Morris. Dick, Dick Morris. Morris Bill, yeah, Bill Clinton's former advisor, right? <laughs> Boy is a monster. Monster. That boy is a monster.
We're talking to Emily Yaffe, who's a contributing editor at the Atlantic Monthly, about a recent article she did in the Huffington Post, Understanding Harvey. So I opened the story with Kraft Ebbing, who was the great 19th century psychiatrist who wrote a book creating a taxonomy of this. And one of his cases was a man who was aroused by buttocks enhancing fashion and would climax in women's bustles. So, well, you know, that was yes. even before Kim Kardashian, <laughs> right. and they didn't have implants then. <laughs> so, that, yes, so Christina, so that's a range of things. And as far as we know, almost all of them are expressed primarily by men. Now, an interesting little asterisk in the BDSM community, and obviously these are people who are engaging consensually in. Bond- spell out BDSM. Bondage, dominance, sadomasochism. Discipline. But discipline. Okay. Sadomasochism. But this is a community where everyone is acting in a consensual way. You know, you have a safe word, etc. And they have workshops in college for that. How? Don't you feel <laughs> your tuition is going to something? <laughs> um, so my understanding is in that community, it's 50-50, which... I mean, I didn't get into it in the story, and the story really focuses on men. But I did wonder if maybe women are better at better being at it. covert yes. about or keeping in fantasy realm their weird, kinky things. I don't know. I mean, when you talk to therapists and they talk about the fantasies they hear over mm-hmm. and over, and this you got into with your adult film star, rape can- fantasies are very common among women, which doesn't mean they want to be raped, but they may be running that film in their head during Well, that's sex. the domination. And then, as Christina discovered, that violence was one of the top searches for women. So there's something about that. But tell me, of the small percentage of women who have these stranger fetishes, what were they? Did you ever... Designer shoes? <laughs> I think I had... <laughs> <laughs> we just, both have that. <laughs> we do. I, just buying them. Nothing more than that. Nothing more than that. I didn't, I focus so much on men because it's, you know, kind of trying to figure out the Me Too thing. But I did talk to one therapist who said, look, when you're looking at exhibitionism, and I don't quote him in the story, he's saying, women are allowed to display themselves in a highly sexual way. Strippers and porn stars. Not just not what women are allowed to wear. And, you know, if you're wearing provocative clothing that gets a reaction, you know, he was saying women have more leeway to look overtly sexual. He didn't say they're exhibitionists, but he kind of was, you know, musing if you're a woman who dresses in a provocative fashion and you see men's eyes, you know, bug out, are you getting a charge from that? Whereas there really isn't a socially acceptable way for men to expose themselves and get a sexual reaction. You're an exhibitionist and you are committing a crime. But there's something so furtive and unsavory about the way flashers work. So a woman looking fabulous in a bikini on the beach and, you know, sort of enjoying the male gaze, it seems very qualitatively different. Also, from, it so wouldn't work for us right now. Well, I'm a new trainer. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm just raising a kind of 
general point this guy was saying when we talk about the difference between men and women. I just can't imagine a woman flasher, I guess. No, I know. that. Well, but then let's see, you just move it to stripping. And they get very different. But these fantasies are very specific, as you said, sort of stylized, and they'll enjoy the risk, I think. Yeah, there's also the risk element of being caught or discovered. Look, when you look at Larry Nassar and Kevin Spacey, (laughs) as I say in my story, here are two people who were doing it essentially in plain sight, Mm -hmm. daring to be caught. Larry Nassar would often have parents of these girls in the room. Mm -hmm. They would be sitting there. He would block their direct view of their daughter with his own body or a towel. So he is molesting their daughters while they're in the room. And the prosecutor at his conviction said, I think with real acuity, that had to have been part of his thrill, that the parents are in the room, he could get caught, but he's getting away with it. Kevin Spacey, too. I mean, it was just almost an open kind of joke. To Richard Dreyfus's son. In front of Richard Dreyfus. Richard Dreyfus is... The three of them are together in Spacey's apartment. Dreyfus's 18-year-old son is there sitting next to Kevin Spacey. Richard Dreyfus is on a chair across from them, looking down, reading a script because he's in a play being directed by Spacey. And while Richard Dreyfus is looking at the script, Spacey puts his hand on the teenage boy's crotch and then lifts his hand and Dreyfus's eyes come up. I mean, that is... Really risky, and obviously that's part so there, of the there's charge. There's a maniacal, yeah. you know, sort of frenzied dimension to this, and they wouldn't, they couldn't achieve it by simply posing for a magazine or being in a porn film. You also said that they also, some of these people, think their victim is going to like it, like that. The surprise. Remember, you wrote about the guy on the bus who would be on yeah. buses. He got out and women. followed a girl whom he touched, and. Thought that she might like him. Right. They because think this is because as sometimes you charm school, you know. This, there's <laughs> swallow. Well, the therapist the I talked to in the therapy world, this is called cognitive distortion. We call it self delusion. And it is very hard to believe, but the people who are doing this, they're caught. So they're forced into therapy. And they'll say of the woman on the bus, well, she was staring. Obviously, if she didn't like it, she would have screamed, got up, done something. She was staring, so she liked it. By the way, why would she stare? I wouldn't stare. I'd leave. I'd change seats. But maybe she was terrified. I don't know. I just wondered about that. I think that girl was terrified. And that's she was frozen. She she was frozen in in terror. Yeah. Well, so this story. So I had some long talks with a man I call Michael, who was arrested at least eight to ten times, done a lot of prison time, now on the sex offender registry who at the same years, Harvey Weinstein was opening his bathrobe at the Beverly Peninsula. Michael's riding the LA County bus and exposing himself. And in this one case he describes, he sits down next to a young woman who's about 20 and unzips himself. And the girl stares, you know, probably shock, fright, whatever. He reads that as interest. He takes her hand, puts it on his penis, and she says, why is it like that? (laughs) And he says, because I'm excited by you. And then she says, I can't breathe. And he says, that's because you're excited by me. 
Well, not quite. She gets off the bus, as you said. He follows. He said, I thought it was going to be a love connection. She flags down the police, and he spends two years in prison. Now, what do we do? If you think after we finish being angry, and and by the way, let's make some distinctions. There's a fundamental difference in my mind, and I'm sure yours, between a Harvey Weinstein, a Bill Cosby, a Kevin Spacey, and then, so you have criminal predators. Then you have boorish behavior, and Al Franken, you know, and I don't know, others that made comments, you know, Juno Diaz, I don't even know if he belongs in any uh, category. (laughs) Juno Diaz, it Falsely accused. Well, you know, there's a good case that he hasn't done anything, and MIT has cleared him to continue teaching. Yes. So, But this is one of the big things, and and you raise this with me too, and I think we're all struggling through this, of not wanting to underestimate or ignore these things that have gone on, but also in the lack of a code of etiquette, you know, these days. How do you think we should approach these issues and distinguish, or how should the Me Too movement distinguish between these? Well, when these first Me Too stories were coming out, I I have to admit, I thought I was beyond being shocked. I was really shocked. And you were beyond being shocked because of your advice column. Well, I'd been, I'm a woman of a certain age. I'd done an advice column for 10 years. I felt I'd gotten letters about everything. But the fact that there are some very powerful men who for decades apparently failed to get the memo, you can't take your penis out at work and rub it on interns, etc., was shocking. And as you said, Christina, what do we do? Well, some people have committed serious crimes and Larry Nasser will be in prison for the rest of his life. So for someone like that, that's what you do. But obviously, just as there's, we would like there to be one way every guy gets to the point where he's committing sexual violations so we can say, oh, this is X, but we can't get there. There's no one way out. It depends on who the person is, the motivation, what they've done. And I do think, you know, this piece, Understanding Harvey, was looking at the worst of the the serial predators. What's going on here? This is not just abuse of power. But you're right. Me Too has brought out a whole range of things. And our response has been put everyone together and try to, to banish them. them. Yeah. yeah. Banish. Well, and that's that's not a sustainable response when you have everything from criminal behavior to, as we just said, Juno Diaz accusations. Or Osnar Ansari. Rude or a bad date. Yeah. Please join the Femsplainers. Yes. Subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or your favorite podcast hangout. And follow us on Instagram at the Femsplainer Podcast. And find the Femsplainers on Facebook and Twitter at Femsplainers. And learn all about us at Femsplainers.com. Thank you. Yeah, Femsplainer. Let me ask you something that's in the news right now, which is Justin Trudeau, Prime Minister of Canada, which I've I've been following this story. I don't know if you guys have. I have. So when he was 28, not in any kind of political position, he was at an event and a reporter from a very regional newspaper went to interview him and she claimed he touched her inappropriately. And we don't know exactly what. We don't know, but it seems that he maybe patted her ass or something. And... 
she reported it at the time to her editor. So it was enough that it made her uncomfortable. And I was thinking about this, and, and I'm, I'm actually quite sympathetic to her, because if you're a reporter out covering, he was still famous. He was yes. the prime minister's son. And he does something, no matter how seemingly innocent, that actually makes you report it to your editors at the time. And she wrote about it. And wrote about it. That you think, well, what kind of man, if you're, let's say, a, a, a normal man who's attracted to a woman and you want to maybe go out for coffee or a date again, you don't touch her ass. You know, like there are gestures. It's even touching her arm so is I, an act I of call, intimacy. I would call that a so boorish what, behavior. And but it's a little it, so more it was than 25 that. years ago? Yeah, you, I, well, I forget. But, but it's a little more than that. It's like someone... Maybe in this case, maybe it is a little bit about power or entitlement or I'm so handsome and awesome, I can do anything. And yet, any other man trying to impress a woman knows that there are certain actions that you do that imply an intimacy pretty quickly. So I've been very fascinated by this, and not least also because he's been, as we know, the biggest quote-unquote feminist and has criticized all these other oh, men doing stuff. Terrible case. And, and now Injustice suddenly he's acknowledging that he may have made her uncomfortable, but denying that he denying he did anything or denying so. he now even says, well, I, you know, sort of I maybe she was uncomfortable, but I didn't mean anything by it. So what do we do about that? Well, it's so similar to the Al Franken case. Right. These guys being hoist on, I mean, they both completely embraced me too. Fine, good for them. Then go on to say, got to believe the women. And Christina, you and I have talked about this. I think we both believe that any accuser has to be taken seriously. I do not either believe the accuser or the accused before you find out what the situation is. And I, I think believing the accuser leads down a bad road, the kind of things we've seen, campus sexual assault. It's just not appropriate to say in this kind of dispute, one person, because of their gender, is always telling the truth and the other one is lying. So I think you must be taken seriously. But both Franken and Trudeau have embraced Believe the Women mm -hmm. and then have had to do this backpedal, well, that's not how I remember it. Well, maybe it's more about their hypocrisy, because I've also, I mean, I've been a young reporter, I've dealt with boorish behavior, and I realize it's wrong to say, oh, well, that's just what people did back then. But if somebody like the young Trudeau had done something like that, I probably wouldn't have even thought twice about it. I just would have thought, you know, what a jerk or, you know, not doing that or whatever. But I wouldn't have gotten upset about it. And I wouldn't have, you wouldn't have wanted reported. to date him. Oh, not no. because he did that. No, you know what? He was now you're going back to my Canadian political roots. Oh, and okay. how I pathologically so dislike the Trudeau. But <laughs> not, not, not if he did that. That was creepy. But no, but he was just like, so how many? Darling. But also, you don't even have to be a reporter. How many young women have to deal with creepy stuff all the time? And that's not right. You know, it's not right. But no, how do we start about Me Too? We all agree men are getting the memo. Normal men are getting the memo that this is not going to work anymore. Right. And a lot of it, I think, was a, a sort of, I don't know, 60s or 70s. There were these mores of just, you know, if it feels good, do it. And there was a permissive sexual culture. And some men didn't realize that's over. We don't have a permissive well, sexual culture. And they persisted in this, now what we regard as just horrible behavior. Well, but it's not sorry. the same as these 
criminals who are also have, I think, classifiable mental. Oh, yeah. I mean, as as I say, Trudeau doesn't need he needs Miss Manners. He doesn't. Right. And there aren't, you know, 50 women haven't come forward. This thing was 18 years ago and there have not been. a And and most women to the young Trudeau would have, as with his father, his father was a real roué. You know, and and women He's were happily throwing themselves. Oh, his father was creepy. creepy. In the lack of a code of etiquette, I mean, I think there are guys who we know they'll just want to sleep with people. And I, I always like the analogy of trying the doorknobs. Like they'll just hit up every woman. You know, it's like in a hotel room. Which door is unlocked, and I can go in. Pinch fifty that, women's yeah, butts. That's and will... not going to work. Yeah. And one of the psychologists. I was talking to said to me, there's now herd immunity for women because the silencing is changing and you will be taken seriously if you come forward. And it is not okay to treat the workplace as your personal Tinder, whatever. No, harem. Two people want to get together, fine. But, you know, for men to just assume the women are there for them to try to turn the doorknob, not okay. And that's good. And there are consequences. But Christina, I agree. You're absolutely right. This is going to change a lot of behavior. Men are getting the memo, but there'll always be sexual psychopathology. And that will exist apart from Me Too or whatever. I mean, what Bill Cosby and Harvey Weinstein and Larry Nasser was doing was never okay. And Harvey Weinstein tried to use the dinosaur excuse. Hey, sixties and seventies. No, well, no. you know, I didn't know that it was people what were he, not uh, ex- carrying on with plants in exactly. hotel lobbies. What he was doing, we know, was never okay. So there will be some people who won't be deterred by whatever the rules of normal society are. What I loved most about your article is that you challenged, in a non-ideological ways, you just challenged two assumptions of, you know, many gender scholars' textbooks. The idea that men and women are the same. I think that Me Too would be much better off if we could acknowledge that men and women are somewhat different when it comes to sexuality. And there are people, many experts on gender differences in, in biology who will say that men do have a stronger sex drive. Testosterone does high levels can drive in men or women. It can drive obsessive and sort of compulsive behavior around sex. But it's mostly, as we said, mostly men who are afflicted by these strange disorders. So I think we we have to acknowledge that men and women are different. And I think we have to acknowledge that there are sexual compulsions that are mental health problems that need psychiatric attention. Yes. First of all, to get back to a point you made at the beginning... We're not talking about computer coding skills. We're talking about sex. And yes, I assert flat out that there are differences. And we're talking in vast generalities about billions of people. We're talking about aggregate differences. Tell the story about that woman who thought she would get back at the men on Tinder, wherever she was, who sent her... I, can I say dick pic on this? <clears throat> they sent her yes, dick, I think pic, that's okay. dick pics. What did she do? I steal the story of... Carrie Quinn, who wrote a terrific little piece in a site called Thrill List. She's single on dating apps, you know, would swipe and match up with a man. And very quickly, she, you know, developed this very large collection of dick pics, totally unwanted. 
So she came up with this little experiment to show them how unpleasant that was. So Teach them a lesson. Yes. <laughs> so she didn't send a picture of herself. She found what she said, a picture of a cute vagina on the internet. And she, Some of them are cute. <laughs> she would swipe. The first experiment, she would swipe, exchange some flirty texts, and then send the photo. And she was expecting they would be pissed off and grossed out as she was when she would get a dick pic. And to her surprise, everyone said, okay, I'm free now. Can we get together? <laughs> Sometimes she asked them, send a picture of yourself, and they were all very happy to do it. So she did two more experiments. One, she just, you know, did the swipe and they exchanged the first hellos, hits them with the photo. Again, men are, you know, I can leave work early. Uh, where are you? <laughs> and then the last one was he swipes. There's no hello. She just photo. Again, what's your address? I'll be right over. No, uh, my son would not do that. <laughs> I can't. I don't know. It. I think they're taking it as a sign of availability and readiness, which they almost never see so bluntly and quickly with women. <laughs> well, but the the what's interesting in a world without women, a male sexual world, mm -hmm. no women on Grinder and other gay sites. Exchanging dick pics is not meant to offend. It's not a hostile act. It's you that's know, actually your it, profile photo. It's yes, it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's meant to entice. And I actually, as I was researching this, I found it is so common that someone was developing a gay app where you would sign up for this dating site, and it would have you would give each other consent before you send the dick pic. Just trying to put, you know, a little gatekeeping because not every man on a gay dating site wants the dick pic immediately. But, but many but, do. Yes. And, and this goes to your point about differences. Yes, I think that's one thing that happened. There was confusion. And just think about it. I mean, a lot of parents are inhibited and don't talk about sex. And kids grow up and they, they don't know what they're doing. And if young men thought, okay, she wants what I want. And I think it'd be great if she grabbed my ass, you know, that'd be funny. And then he does. So I think that we have to do a better job instructing young men on good manners and that women do expect sort of slightly different treatment. Absolutely true. And, Absolutely and we need true. to be able to talk about this openly. And that's what I was part of what I was trying to do. Let's take it somewhat out of the political realm and put it back in the sexual right, realm. It's not and power. It's not misogyny. Well, yeah, of necessarily, course. Necessarily. There are elements. Yes. But, yeah. you know. It's so much more. Yes. And, and we're not. And we're, we've simplified it right. into this narrow, and, angry little narrative that suits various agendas, but it doesn't solve problems. That's what's frustrating. If this sort of hardlined feminist Me Too standard for Me Too, if they stick to that, they may feel good, they may feel sanctimonious, self-righteous, but they won't solve the problem. Well, and there's another problem with it, as you mentioned when we first started talking. There are very few Harveys, thank goodness. So to demonize, you know, the hashtag all men, or, you know, to just say men engage in toxic masculinity, that's what they do. You know, to demonize male sexuality, it used to be men were the default sex and there was something wrong with women. Well, it doesn't work to say women are the default sex and there's something wrong with men. Absolutely. Where both exist, there are, in general, obviously it's not true 
every individual, some differences. So let's talk about those. And as you say, let's help young people negotiate this kind of thing. But, you know, when you're talking about why men, every study I've seen internationally that deals with, you know, sort of population studies, men start masturbating earlier. Men masturbate more. When you're looking at studies of hypersexuality, the bar for entry is much lower for women. You know, everyone understands. Who goes to prostitutes? There's an orgasm gap. So there are... An orgasm (laughs) gap. Oh, my goodness. Masturbation gap. What a great new hashtag. (laughs) That's not new. Oh, this has been type in orgasm gap. So, you know, when you're talking about heterosexual sex, men, pretty much if a woman shows up and things unfold, the man will have an orgasm. The woman won't necessarily have an orgasm. And that's where we're, you know, education and being more open about more sex. candles and cuddling. <laughs> Whatever gets you there, or maybe more me, discussion. Like a fire truck and a yellow. <laughs> yeah, uh, of your kinky, to. weird, <laughs> accessing your weird fantasies and not being so ashamed of those. We're talking to Emily Yofi, contributing editor of The Atlantic, an all-round fantastic person. So we need better sex education Absolutely. and outreach. Outreach. Well, treatment. Yeah, and outreach. To tell young people, How do you treat it? even for child molesters, I've read from Dr. Fred Berliner and others that the majority who have those urges don't act on them. So it's a subset who will act. Right. You need to offer help and treatment for people who are feel that they might act on them, but not before they do. So that would mean some way reaching young people who have dangerous sexual predilections. One of our societal myths is that anyone who has crossed a sexual line in any way is permanently deviant, extremely deviant, and can't be helped. All those myths are wrong. And as you say, Christina, I I was talking to a forensic psychiatrist, and there aren't that many who deal with specifically men with pedophilia, et cetera. She said, many of my patients have not acted on this. Sometimes they're in therapy, they've been caught because of child pornography laws. Mm -hmm. They've never touched a child, but their arousal is over fantasies about children. So they watch child pornography. We put people in prison for a long, long time for doing that. And in Germany, people who are dealing with these urges are encouraged to get therapy. In the United States, there are some places where if you went to your therapist and said, I haven't touched any children, but that's where my sexual arousal is. I need help. They can be reported. We discourage exactly the kind of treatment that could make us all safer. And are you going to be able to change that sexuality? Again, people said the people with these interests come on a continuum. Some are able to be married and, you know, they run this as a fantasy. Some then on the other end, the Larry Nasser. But they're not all the same. And this guy, this exhibitionist, Michael, who I talked to, who spent years exposing himself and years being arrested and going in and out of prison. Well, he's now in the sex offender registry. 
which means he is a very, very tightly supervised person. He has not committed a sex offense in 15 years. And he got treatment. He started getting treatment in prison. And part of it was impulse control. And he was diagnosed with bipolar disorder. So treating all these other things, he said, I learned, you know, something most of us know, you get an urge if you don't act on it, the urge will pass. So you learn how to make it longer and longer between acting on the urge, you get other coping skills. But he said, I'm on this registry for life. It's been 15 years. And we talk and say, oh, we believe in rehabilitation, but we don't act as if we do. There's no way he can get off. So I think we don't even know that people can reform. These are it, like the, that sex registry. And, and they, they've sometimes put 17-year-olds, you know, whose girlfriend, there was sexting or something, and they put them on that. And it's like a modern day leper colony of untouchables for life. You should do a show about the sex offender registry. It's it too, you know, is so painful. Horror. It's so painful. Mm-hmm. We're it such is approaching a, a million uh, people. A large number of people are on it for juvenile offenses. You are 18. Your girlfriend was 15. You're having sex. Her parents find out. It's statutory rape. And your life is destroyed. Your life is so comprehensively destroyed. And... The horror of the sex offender registry is that, you know, it started with the idea, the worst of the worst, and the police should know where they are. Well, then maybe neighbors should know where they are. The resources going to these draconian ways people on the offender registry have to live are a huge waste of resources. Very few of those people present a danger. So we are making ourselves less safe because we are wasting resources, criminalizing people who've crossed some kind of line, and we keep expanding what that line is. And we are very unusual in the world for doing this. But, you know, where's the political will to say we've gone too far? All politicians want to say we've made it even harder. The 18-year-old teenager who has sex with his 15-year-old girlfriend and ends up on the registry if he ends up marrying and having children and having a job, which is be a very hard thing to do, this man for life wouldn't be able to go and pick up his kids at school or go have a meeting at school. This is how crazy this is crazy. registry is. Well, you had a great line in the book where you, you described the United States as, you know, we're sort of hooked on the lewd and at the same time, excel at the punitive. We are very, very punitive. Way beyond beyond any other society. Talk about some of the treatment programs you've seen. You mentioned Germany earlier, but in other countries that are dealing with this maybe more effectively and humanely. Well, as a Canadian, Canada has a completely different approach to this. And many of the people, the Americans I spoke to who deal with sexual deviance issues, and it's a real subspecialty, and there isn't in, you know, if someone's getting a degree in psychology, they may have almost no exposure to treating people with sexual deviance. So many of them went to Canada for training. In Canada, because there is a health system, people can go for treatment. I need help. You're not going to get arrested because you say you need help unless you've committed some kind of crime. But if you're saying, I'm trying to have these urges, I want to get control, you can go get help. They just are not as punitive as we are. And I think, you know, it's a good, is their society more riven by, you know, horrible sex crimes? No. So, I mean, it's a demonstration 
what we do is really counterproductive. And frightening to children, too. I think that there's a sort of panic around sexuality right now that we may be creating a generation of weird kids. Well, we're yes, going to be frightened of sexuality. Right. And this is goes uh, what we're talking about with our adult film star, Chanel Preston. On the one hand, we're kind of terrified of what our teenagers and kids can see online with, you know, just yeah, a what click saw. of the a click through. Yeah, that wasn't even like censored to us. But you also make the point that, on the other hand, we're sending this sexual alarm about normal behavior to children. Normal so behavior. Talk about that a little. This reminds me a little, you guys will remember the satanic abuse oh. panic. In the daycare, daycare centers. centers. Daycare centers, the 80s Tunnels, and 90s. children. Yeah, I mean, just completely false charges against people. Preschool children having stories implanted in them. Uh, False memory syndrome. Give right, just totally. t- give a tiny summary of what that for those who didn't live through it. It it was a moral panic that children at daycare centers were being engaged in ritual satanic abuse, horrible sexual abuse, literally human sacrifice, animal sacrifice. Absolutely insane on its face. And children, you know, accusations. On, on, on rockets being taken away. To- well, because then the psychologist would go cross-examine the four-year-old and, and, implant, and implant these show ideas. Show what happened to you. Did this happen to you? Did, and then finally, <laughs> did the monsters came- come to you? And- monsters right. did yeah. come. So there was a nationwide terror. The FBI had hundreds of investigations. Many people went to prison for decades over this. And, you know, it just created this complete climate of panic and fear. Finally, that went away. I am worried a little bit in the wake of Me Too, I'm seeing, and also coming out of the campus stuff, a lot of people are saying, you can't start with the young adults talking about consent. And we just talked about we need to have better sex education, but not terrifying sex education. And I'm seeing a lot of, and of course, it's all well-meaning. Let's put consent education down to, you know, the preschool level. But I'm seeing this kind of no-touch movement. No one but mom and dad and your doctor should touch you. Yeah, there was even a warning. Don't You don't have to embrace your yep. grandparents. You don't have to embrace aunts and uncles. So it's consensual hugging for four-year-olds. Like, you shouldn't say, go hug. There's some relatives I would like consensual hugging with. <laughs> Actually, I think that's kind of a good idea. My Aunt Mamie was a, that, that, that perfume. You know, look, you all, you, this is like, should, we all have, no, oh, she smells, I don't want to kiss her. Okay. But where do you say that's a bad touch, that's a violation? Right. I mean, I... The creepy uncle problem. There's, you know, schools where teachers are not allowed to touch the children or teachers like, I'm never going to touch a kid. And I think this is also the number of male elementary school teachers has been falling and falling. It's very dangerous dangerous. profession for them. I've read there are even studies now coming out kind of saying, if you're an elementary school teacher, you must be able to, sometimes kids just need a hug. You know, we have kids going through all sorts of things and, you know, just the comfort of human touch, we have to be able to give these children. But there's teachers who are terrified. I could be acute. You know, if a small child gets told, only your doctor and mommy or daddy touch you, I'm worried that kids are going to misinterpret 
benign touching. You know, we don't want to create the same climate of fear we had in the 80s and 90s. As, you know, my reporting showed, these impulses start way earlier than we like to address. And so if kids are feeling things and they're getting the message, you're weird and creepy, there's something wrong with you, you know, kids want to play doctor, well, you're actually a little predator. I don't have the answer for how we sort this out, but demonizing all touch or sexual impulses is not the way to do it. Well, Emily, I'm going to ask you to stay on, if you could, for our mail section, because this week we have a lot of mail from our interview with Chanel Preston, the porn star, and I realize you are probably more qualified to answer these questions than we are, but this has just been a fascinating discussion. And I think having these discussions is the way to start helping with the situation. Helping with the situation and bring some common sense some and some good science into a complicated social problem. All right. Should we go to mail? Go to mail. Okay, so we got a ton of comments, of course, on our porn segment. A lot of them were, you know, actually just found the podcast interesting, came to the same conclusions that we did, that we were surprised at how pornography doesn't have the effects that we thought it might. But then there was a man named Richard who really took offense to our podcast. He thought we were way too nice to Chanel about what she was doing. And I'll just read you a quote from his letter, and then I'd love to hear what Emily says. Of course, you, Christina. Richard wrote, I am far from a prude and not judgmental about porn. However, I do have two grown millennial-age children, a male and a female, and for the life of me, I can't imagine not feeling deeply disturbed and embarrassed if my daughter, or my son for that matter, made porn their career. I don't remember the age of your children, but if the interview was more sincere rather than wink, wink, you go girl, in style girlfriend chat that it was, I'm sure you would admit that it would not be okay if your children decided to go in that direction for their lives and careers. And he also goes on to say, I also found Chanel's whole normalizing tone to be incredibly annoying. No, being whipped in chains, flogged, and ejaculated upon, or whatever, is not female empowering. It's one thing to have a spicy private life. It's a whole different thing doing it for a living. Hey, they had a sexualized society in Pompeii, as you pointed out. So what's our problem? Right. Emily, do you want to address, is porn normalizing kinky sex? Are we promoting a porn star by having her talk about her trade? We weren't you go, girl. We had serious... Emily... No, I listened to the podcast. You had serious questions and concerns. And, you know, you, you talked about, we looked at some of your stuff. We've found it very disturbing. And I share what you expressed. The, my real concern is kids, young kids are watching this. And how do you block that? We haven't found a way. And I don't know what the answer is there. So I agree that children who are too young are seeing unbelievably graphic stuff. But we're not putting that genie back in the bottle. I mean, the technology exists. The stuff exists. Interestingly, during the rise of porn, there's been a drop in 
real life sexual experience between young people. So, you know, we, we just don't fully know its effects, but, but you were talking about the correlation of sexual violence. Sexual violence has fallen dramatically over the time that porn has risen. And, you know, Richard is like, then certainly don't look at it. And of course, I think we'd all agree would be, we'd be upset if our children were porn stars, but that's not the issue. The, you know, that was her choice. And I thought you asked the right questions, but we're also treated her with respect. Why right. would you? We're not her therapist. We're not. Yeah. But here's a question, actually. Pornography is, as we know, pervasive in a way never in history. Although I swear I was in Greece last week and I saw so many pornographic ancient mm. art. Oh, you didn't go to Delos. I did go oh. to Delos. Oh, I hope my it's goodness. not because I mentioned it. No, because I actually took all these photos that I thought oh would my be God. fun on you Instagram. You sent one to me. That was my first dick pic. <laughs> that was <laughs> an ancient dick pic. <laughs> they were. Uh, as Harvey Weinstein's one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, His but, was quite ancient. But what you sort of realize is even today, if I were to put these out on Instagram, which I chortling to myself thought I would do, and then I came back and go, Gosh, posting these 2,500-year-old pictures, I will get banned from Facebook You'd be thrown off Twitter, for they'd, sure. They'd be super graphic. So, okay, so if the ancient Greeks had the internet, I'm sure they would have been doing everything that we're doing. But maybe there's also something, and I've actually, given what you've researched and talking to therapists, maybe somebody looks and goes, oh, okay, that's graphic. I'm a little titillated. I'll look at it for another second. Now I'm never going back there. There's also, and this is, I think, the point Chanel was trying to make, there are people who seek it out. And some people can look at or not look at a little bit of porn, but there are other people who become obsessed with it. Does that correlate with what, I mean, just because it's there doesn't mean you seek it, I guess. Well, I think that is one of the concern, especially, you know, as young sexuality gets developed, do, are we going to create more people with these very focused, weird scripts because they're allowed to see strange things? And I once interviewed a California psychologist Marty Klein, who wrote a whole book about this. And he said, parents have to acknowledge their kids are very likely looking at this and they have to talk about it. And one of the things they have to say is, this is made up. This is a movie. As Chanel was talking exactly. about, this is, this is not how normal sex looks or works. And you have to know this is hired people, you know, under highly specific circumstances. And no one wants to talk about this, but at least open that conversation and saying, you are seeing, this isn't sex education. This is like, you know, seeing a Marvel comic movie, you know, mm -hmm. people don't actually fly and etc. What someone once said that we are now exposing children to explicit sexuality that every previous generation went to great lengths to protect yes. them from. We're doing it routinely. We don't know I mean, it's possible people are healthy and resilient by and large, so maybe we're not going to produce maniacs, but it's worrisome. But as you say, there's not a lot we can do about it. As for Richard, Danielle and I over and over again expressed concern and worry, and I said, even though I sort of understand what you're saying, I would feel heartbroken if my granddaughter were to tell me she was going to become a porn star. Impossible. She's a, <laughs> she's a pianist and a chartist. We had one other short one, and actually this goes a little bit to what we discussed today. Somebody wrote to us, Regarding your interview with Chanel Preston, you may want to read Arousal, The Secret Logic of Sexual Fantasies. 
the author contends that some may desire to be the submissive in domination fantasies as a relief from daily responsibility. I, so what's the point? Well, I can see that... Are you telling us that that's what you... Why is that... No, my fantasy is... that self-justification? My fantasy is is my children loading the dishwasher. (laughs) That would be a relief from daily... And my fantasy is my dog walking herself. (laughs) Speaking of that, Emily and I share the fact that we live around the corner from each other and we walk our dogs together. Yes. But my dog, I have... You know what? The sad thing is... Izzy does have sex fetishes. She's gender nonconforming. And your dog is upstanding. He tries to dominate my she, girl dog, Sappy, Labrador, who is eight times her size. She has, I don't want to say this, I don't want to make jokes, but she has, you could bring us up on charges of sexual assault. And Roxy, <laughs> not Roxy, is your dog, is it? No. Foxy. 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 <laughs> yeah. Oh, sorry, Foxy. <laughs> Foxy, let's not get into pronouns with our animals. (laughs) So the last thing I want to bring up is I just read an article recently about Netflix. Netflix now has a, apparently there was a sexual harassment workshop in which the senior staff were told that they should convey the message that getting someone's phone number from someone else, that's a no-no, and looking at someone longer than five seconds is considered creepy. So, oh, I I just creepy with you, Christina. So but only employees on the autism be- spectrum, right? <laughs> <laughs> who can't look at you, who like avert well, their and, eyes. And Google, I don't have it in front of me, but there, there's some kind of rule. You can ask someone out once if you get a no. Never again. Maybe yeah, yeah. never Netflix again or not too. for another six-month period. I agree with you, Christina. There need to be kind of general rules about civility. As soon as you start drilling down and getting very specific, then you are creating more violations. You know, a lot of courtship in doing researching, understanding Harvey, I looked at what we know about the erotic. The erotic is charged by obstacles, you know, attraction and obstacles equals excitement. A lot of courtship starts with a no and, you know, and the woman, maybe it's like, God, no, never, or how interested are you? Or may I'm dating someone now, no, now, but, you know, I'll send out some signals to you in six weeks and maybe we'll go out. And I'm not talking subordinate boss, but to get rules so specific just invites violation because what if he asks, she says no, then Two months later, they're somewhere and a spark seems to form or, you know, they go out, something happens or it falls apart. And then she said, well, you know, I had given him the note. We, we don't want to impose campus style, really specific rules that, quote, criminalize normal behavior. So how long you can make eye contact or... You've just made eye contact with me for... An inappropriate amount of time, Emily, so I'm not going to bring up charges, but it's almost as if we're giving our sex lives over to operatchiks, these these sex bureaucrats with too much time on their hands, and so they come up with these sorts of things at Netflix. Shame on you, Netflix. Leave people alone and have reasonable rules. Reasonable rules. Okay, I think we're going to end it there. Thank you so much, Emily, for coming. We hope you'll come on again and femsplain to us about so many other topics. We're just an honor to have you on. She's the best femsplainer ever. Oh, thank you. And Rosé next time. <laughs> yeah, uh, we still need a cocktail. Yes. She didn't drink enough at all. 
at all, and we're drunk. It's not fair. 